0: Acts chapter chapter 3. Um, I told you when we started this study, and this could be uh, somewhat self-criticizing, but I have no interest in informing you about the history of the early church. I know that sounds so bad. I leave that to teachers, teachers should do that. I am compelled by this text for us to ask questions about what is the church supposed to be today. They have the same Lord, the same salvation, the same Holy Spirit as we do. They're seeing crazy, ridiculous things that God is doing in their midst. And I just simply ask the question every time I come to the text, God, would you do that here? Would you make this group of people, some 3,500 people, would you make us like that church? Like who believed things so deeply that we lived so differently than what comes normal? Would you make us a people of faith? and of prayer, who love each other in ridiculous ways? Would you make us like that? Would we be the kind of witness in our world that people would experience someone who goes to Gilbert and say, man, something's different about you, what is it? And we get to tell them, Jesus. That is my interest. I wanna point to what God's doing there and drag us to that place. I wanna inform our minds about what God is doing now and what he will do in our lives if we trust in him um, I also love this about narratives like this in chapter 3. I am not a planner. I'm a reactor. Anybody know people like me? You avoid people like me because he's a reactor. I don't sit down and craft like, you know, on that, uh, that second week in February, I'd like to be here doing this text because I think if we get there in February, by March, we could be. I don't, I'm not that complex. Somebody other than me planned for us to be in chapter 3. And somebody planned to do a baptism uh, today. I think the number today will be somewhere around 70 people in, um, yeah, that's good. In all of our services. And I thought to myself, okay, if God was going to do a strategic strike with a particular text to speak to the point of baptism to the variety of people that are going to come to a service like that, this would be it. This this chapter screams confession. It is screaming to us, you got to do something with Jesus. And my assumptions are, and I don't, I don't want to assume too much, but when people get baptized, everyone shows up. I love that. And I love that you're here. You are so welcome. You can be here whenever you want to. You don't have to just wait for a baptism. I'm really glad you're here. But there's a potential, like every week we have, where people know about Jesus because they've heard some stuff. And then there's the real Jesus in chapter 3, the one that Peter preaches, the one that radically changes people's lives. It can't happen any other way. And so I thought to myself, okay, God, this is, this is strategic, that you said we were going to preach this gospel message on that day when the masses will come for whatever reasons they come. And so I, I want you to know that if you're understanding Christ and you confess Christ, then this sermon is going to ring in your heart. If you have learned and heard about him, he's more of a historical figure, then this is going to push on some of your paradigms. That's what we have in front of us this week. So I'm going to read this text in three parts because it's long. It's 26 verses. The, the first eight verses will just be the story. It'll be the narrative, and from there on we will follow Paul. Peter's response to this event. okay? So some of you have heard this story before, but nevertheless, let's get into it, chapter three, verse one. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was, had, was been carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping in praising God. Here's uh, an amazing day in the life of Peter and John. Wouldn't you agree? Here's what they're doing. This is not like wake-up day for evangelism. That's not what this is. Th- this is two good Jewish boys on way to the temple to pray like everyone does. This is the second day opportunity for prayer during the day. They pray in the morning, kind of mid morning, and they pray at, at evening and at dusk. And this is that middle hour, that three p.m. hour, and they're marching to the temple like everybody's doing. Just picture now the masses moving to do this this kind of corporate prayer thing. Okay, so the traffic is heavy, which explains exactly why this beggar is where he is, outside the gates of the temple. If you're a beggar, you want traffic, right? You need traffic. And by the way, what's really great about this kind of traffic, this is the kind of Jewish traffic who comes out of the temple convinced that if they do good works for God, he counts it for them. So if you're ever going to get somebody to kind of go, okay, well, here's some money, well, that would be the day. That would be the place. And that's where this beggar finds himself. He's capitalizing on the crowd in the moment. And he is put there, the text says, every single day. That's his life. Crippled from birth... His ankles and his feet don't work. And some of his friends know that that's the way he supplies for himself. So they take him to the gate and they drop him at the gate. And when the crowds come by to pray, he starts asking. All right? That's that's the scene. And these people who are eager to do their thing for God are probably more inclined to give. And my guess is that Peter and John, being faithful prayers themselves and faithful Jewish men, have passed this man a time or two. If he's there every day, and they pray three times a day, every day, there he is. There he is. There he is. Maybe you have never, ever stopped to look. Maybe you never stopped to wonder or ask questions of him, but just familiar. There he is all the time. My guess is he's not alone. If it was good for one, it'd be good for Many. And my guess is there are dozens of people who are infirmed and crippled and capable who are sitting by the gate waiting for the crowds to feel bad enough or good enough to give. That's what they were doing, okay? Now, there's a question that pops in my mind, at least when I read the text. And that is, okay, if, if this man is there every day and they passed him every day, why this day? Why this man? Why did they move towards him this time? I don't have an answer. Isn't that a bummer? I mean, other than this, the Spirit of God said something to Peter and John, move your feet, do something, respond to this. Why this man? I, I don't know the answer to that either. All I know is the answer to anything like this is God is sovereign And in this description of sovereign isn't just that he gets to do what he pleases, which is true, but it also is based on his character, which is good and right and true and kind. So a God who does as he pleases, who always does good and right, turns his good and right towards a man at a particular moment in time to to bring him blessing. And that's what he does. And he does great things when he moves that way, right? I don't know why some people get healed and why others don't. I don't know why you pray for friends or loved ones and say, God, would you, could you please, I know you could, would you? And sometimes nothing. I don't know why. Other than this, he's always good. He's always right. He's always about his glory and he's always for our good. I put all that together and go, okay, I just don't understand some things. And in this situation, you have the day. Of all the days, I don't know how old this man is, of all the days of begging, of all the days of his need, God shows up today in an amazing way for him, all right? And so Peter and John, based on, I think, the leading of the Holy Spirit, move towards this man who's crying out for alms. Money, please. Money, please. And my assumption, and I don't think I'm far from this, it's like beggars. They don't, they don't necessarily engage with you. They don't want relationship. They're just broadcasting. They want somebody to hear them. And if there's masses coming in, I don't think these guys looked at Peter and John and said, you two, give to me. They're just saying to everybody, give me something. That's, it, that's what explains why Peter, when he actually turned towards him, he looks him in the eye and says, look at us, because we're the ones who are going to respond to this. I know you're crying out to the masses, but I'm here. We're here, and we're going to respond to this right now. And so Peter says something in verse 6 that I think was the last thing this beggar wanted to hear, but the greatest dream he ever had. Because what he wanted to hear was, here's some silver, here's some gold. And the way Peter introduces himself to this man was, I don't have any. Now, if you're a beggar who's used to living on the little pieces of money people give you, you just want him to move on, get out of the way, because there's another person coming. But what Peter says is, I don't have what you're looking for, but I have what you need. I I have what you need. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I don't think this man had a clue what he just heard. I don't think he suddenly conjured up a whole bunch of faith to believe. God did a miracle. And Luke, who's a doctor who was writing this particular text, in his precision to try to tell us what was wrong with the man, identifies his ankles and his feet. They were the problem. Disjointed feet. His whole life, never able to bear weight. And Peter simply says, rise and walk. And he takes him by the right hand and he lifts him up. And instantly the text says, this man's feet and his ankles were made straight. And he stands up, okay? And he jumps to his feet and he begins to walk. This man who was crippled from birth. This wasn't, he didn't stretch. He didn't warm up. He didn't do anything. He got up and started bouncing around. Now, I'm 55 years old. You know what it's like for me to get up in the morning? This hip is out of place every morning and I roll a certain way, it comes in place, and I know I can walk. And then I put my feet on the floor, and it's like, uh, you, you guys, old guys know this, right? Half an hour later, they wake up, and you can stand up. That's true. You kind of expect the man, whoever old he is, to kind of, I've never, I've never used these before. I've never bore weight before. Right up. Right up, jumping and praising the Lord, which is the truth of all biblical miracles. They are unexpected, they're instantaneous, and they're always complete. That's what God does with miracles. And by the way, beyond the reality of what's happening to this man, I love the picture of the good news that's happened to this man. If I just use some of the phrases, I'll make my point. This man couldn't help himself, could he? I mean, he had a problem that he couldn't fix. And spiritually speaking, not a single person in here can help yourself either. We try though in that religion. Here's what religion says work hard, try more, have your good pile at least be a little bit taller than your bad pile, right? That's what religion does but it doesn't work because here's what the scriptures tell us, okay? You might never have heard this before, but the prophet Isaiah says, from God's mouth to us about our righteous deeds, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. So we call them righteous because we compare our actions to other people. And we can look left and right and go, man, I'm better than him, better than her. That might happen. But God says, no, 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 you compare what you do to me, and I'm holy and perfect, And I know your motives. I know what you do. I know why you do what you do. And when he measures us like that, everyone falls short. But like this man, spiritually speaking, he couldn't help himself. We can't save ourselves. The the man couldn't be helped by anything the world had to offer. Silver and gold wouldn't have fixed his feet. They'd just get him to the next prayer meeting. That's all they could do. And what the world has to offer won't fix your issues either. But don't we try. <laughs> Come on now. If, if you're 30 years old, you got more scars than you can shake a stick at. Because all those scars represent all the efforts to find out if the world could fix the problem. Joy is what I want. I'll go fabricate joy. And how will I do it? I'll, I'll hurt other people maybe. Not like intentionally, but they're in the way because I'm most important. And you get the damage from all that. Pleasure, pleasure is what I want. Well, you know what pleasure can do? Pleasure always starts on Friday, but gets really bad by Saturday morning. Isn't it true? We try those things. We strive. Some, some people go, and it's not that. I'm not a partier. I just work really hard. How much, how much work do you have to do to be satisfied? How much money do you have to have to not want more? The world can't fix it. The world can't make it right. You're never going to get to the end of the world because the world just offers a bunch of types of joys, and we buy into that. We go after it, only to go, well, that didn't last very long, did it? That's a reality. And also, what this man heard, what we are going to talk about today is what's true for us in the good news. It's only by the name of Jesus that he is healed. It's only by the name of Jesus that anybody in here can be healed of your sin. In fact, we're going to find out when Peter keeps preaching in chapter 4, he says there is salvation in no other name. No other name. Now, this might be where you go, I'm offended. Because you're, you're drawing this thing about you and God or me and God down to this exclusive narrow line that eliminates all of my things, all the things I've done. Yeah, I am. Because He is. There is salvation in no other name. And no other name under heaven by which men must be saved is Jesus Christ. And this man would not have stood. His legs would not have been made straight without Jesus. And my crippled, broken, always stuck on stupid heart needs Jesus. Otherwise, I don't live. I can't think. It's exclusively Jesus or it's nothing else. That is the good news. Because if you come to Jesus... Anybody, and always, if you come to Jesus, you'll be saved. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. Now, this guy had every reason for a praise and worship moment. Um, He wasn't quiet. My guess is he was a little obnoxious, but I think he has every right to be a little obnoxious. Whole life with no feet. Suddenly, he's got feet, and he is dancing and jumping around. My assumption is that some of the people in the temple are going, that's really inappropriate. You shouldn't be happy here. It's church. (laughs) Calm down. Don't respond to God like that. Be like the rest of us. Sour. Sour. Okay. Everyone notices. Hard to deny. Look at verses 9 and 10. And the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat by the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. That's the dude. We've walked by him a hundred times. He's been here for 30 years. We drag him out there every prayer meeting. That's him. And here's what they say. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. You should write in there, end questions. Because wonder and amazement wasn't that they knew Why? It wasn't like they go, oh, that's amazing, and giving glory to God. No, they, they were amazed, and they didn't know why. And they started sorting through what could have happened, what could this mean, okay? And so as the crowd, as it should, gathers around the miracle, Peter goes, time to preach. They need to know. They need to know what happened here. Look at verses 19, uh, 19, 11 through 19. While he clung to Peter, that's the crippled man or former crippled man, to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomons. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant who? of you all and now brothers I know you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that is Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled so just picture an amazing moment it'd be like if I had a friend who was 30 years old who was infirmed always infirmed and he was miraculously healed every one of you would show up here no matter what time of day we're going to tell you why And they're there. They want to hear. They want to know about the miracle. And he also knows they're inclined to think that Peter and John had something to do with the miracle, which is like us too. So he starts to preach to correct their perspective. And the first thing he does in verses 12 and verses 16 is tell the people that Jesus is the one who heals. We had nothing to do with it. Now, if Peter lived in 2017, we could accuse him of missing a golden opportunity. Because Peter, he could have wrote a book. He could have asked for an offering. He could have signed some autographs and churches could be full because Peter could said, yeah, God and me get this deal. I heal people. And if you come here, I'll do something for you. Peter just goes, no, 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 no. It's Jesus. And let me tell you about this Jesus. It has nothing to do with us. You're looking at the wrong place. And all the people could see was the miracle workers. They couldn't see the author of life. And so he begins to unpack for them some things, right? He points these people, to Jesus exclusively. And he encourages them to look at this miracle in a different way. Look at this miracle and find God. So do you want to know why I think God in his supernatural wisdom had you come today? For that reason? I want you to look at this miracle and find God. The point of this story, beyond the reality of some man walking and receiving the blessings of that, is that what God offers in Jesus is amazing healing. And some of you need that today. In fact, all of us need that today. Agreed? So here's what Peter does. He really wanted them to understand who Jesus was, so he draws a contrast between the, the pe- for the people to who they thought Jesus was and who Jesus really is, which, which needs to be cleared up today. Let's be, be honest. Here's what the people thought of Jesus. He is a dead, wannabe prophet who didn't achieve his goals. I mean, there was a splash, right? He came and did some stuff, and people followed him. But wasn't it just a couple of months ago we hung him? Didn't he die? Yep. But he also rose. He rose from the dead. And they thought of him as a dead, um, unfulfilled prophet. And Peter says Jesus was handed over to be killed. He was crucified on Passover week, remember? Remember? That Jesus. In fact, it's, it's the one that you, listener, you handed over to Pilate to be killed. Remember, you were there, this same crowd. These people now wondering about the miracle of the man healed were the same crowd who were standing saying, crucify him. Same group. They had disowned Jesus. They had called him a fraud and a blasphemer. And Pilate, if you know the story of, of that Passion Week, Pilate, the Roman governor, uh, didn't feel like there were any charges to stick to Jesus, didn't want to execute Jesus, so he came up with a plan, um, a good uh, will gesture, and it was a custom in that day to suggest to the people that we could trade a crime with a criminal. Like, we'll give you some options. Who do you want to deal with today? And he threw out Barabbas and Jesus. Jesus, the innocent one, Barabbas, a notoriously evil man, a man who should be punished, and the people chose Barabbas. It'd be the equivalent of saying, you've got a choice today, church. Ted Bundy or Jesus? And we'd say, give us Bundy. That's how absurd this was. And Peter makes that point to them. You called it. You picked it, all right? Peter makes sure they know exactly who he's talking about He's talking about this Jesus these people wanted dead, and he puts the responsibility of it at their feet, and he gives credit to this miracle to this Jesus. That's what he does. Now, I have to blast through this for, because of time. That's who they thought Jesus was, that he was just a failed attempt at a prophet. But now he unpacks in like a flurry of phrases who Jesus really is. Now, if you're a good praying Hebrew, listen to what he says. I'm just going to go through these. Verse 13, he is glorified by the God of their fathers. He is the true Messiah. This is not a new thing Jesus did. He's the fulfillment of an old thing you have been wishing for, longing for, and praying for from the very beginning. He is the one. And you killed him. He is a servant, verse 13. He is holy and righteous, words reserved for God alone. He is holy and righteous. He is the author of life, creator of life. He's the one God raised from the dead. He is the one foretold by the prophets, verse 18, and he is Savior, Christ, Messiah, verse 19. This Jesus that Peter pointed to was not just a good man. And that's what these people had to deal with. He is God. He is God in human form. He is God incarnate. This Jesus left heaven and took on a body on a rescue mission for sin as the Savior of the world. That's who this Jesus is. He is the author of life. Can't be said about anybody but God, He is the Redeemer. So let me stop for a second. Why why does Peter take so much time to make this point about who Jesus is? Why am I bringing it up, okay? Because it is, listen to me, it is the central issue of faith. Because if you don't believe what Peter just said about Jesus, there is no salvation, there is no forgiveness of sins, there is only judgment from a God who, let's be honest, we deserve I'm, I'll just confess, if, you, if I'm all alone in this room, I confess out loud, I deserve the wrath of God. I know what I am. I know what I think about. I know, I, I know my struggles. I know where I have fallen. I know what I willfully do sometimes. I know me. If, if God was just going to be fair, he'd crush me based on his holy standard. That's the reality, Okay. The reason why Peter makes this point, the reason why we got to make this point is the central issue is who is Jesus? Because if you miss on Jesus, listen to me, you miss salvation. You can't have it. You can't put him in a category of well-intended man, good guy, sincere as sunshine. He's a good prophet. You can't put him in those categories, right? If Jesus was simply a good man, then here's what you'll do. You'll spend your life trying to earn your salvation by being good. Emulate. He was good, I'll be good. But I just told you, if Isaiah is true, and he is, God measures us not based on this kind of performance. He measures us on his standards. And then we all fall short. So goodness doesn't get it. If Jesus is just a good teacher, then you'll spend your life trying to obey all his teachings, hoping that if you do enough, you'll earn heaven. If 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 Jesus is simply just a martyr, Then he died for a cause and all he can do is inspire us. Good story. Like going to a movie, you know. I'm rocky, ready to fight somebody. It's a good story. But if Jesus is who Peter says he is, if he's the one and only God, if he's the author of life, if he's the holy and righteous one in human form and he's risen from the dead, then you need to hear me on this. It means your sin is paid in full. If you confess him, Amen. it means there's an eternity of joy set before you, a wonderful fulfillment available to all who trust in him. And if this is the true Jesus, which I think it is, and I think the scriptures prove, then the miracle that this man experienced by walking hardly even moves the needle compared to the miracle of his changed heart. <laughs> um, I've been known to be stubborn. So is my wife, by the way. That's how I found out. But so are you. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met a stubborn person before? Stuck in their ways. Come on. Every hand should be in the hair. We all know stubborn people, okay? When you're meeting someone who is locked up as stone in their heart towards what you're saying, what do you do? One, you go down the road. You're like, they're crazy. They're just crazy. Because I'm giving them good stuff, and they're just crazy. They don't, they don't get it. No, there's this thing called the... The will of the man, will of the heart, that wars, you know, thinks he's right, defends his actions, excuses his behavior, that guy, it's in me. That warring, selfish, stubborn soul, the greatest miracle that ever arrived on the planet, God would take that warring heart and submit it to him. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you straight up, if God didn't do the miracle of straightening the brokenness of my heart, there's no way i believe. He has to, the greatest miracle is that wherever you are in your life, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been or what you think you know for certain, if it's, if it's wrong and you admit your wrongness, God will take that stubbornness, that inclination to argue, that inclination to excuse and to find some version of self-righteousness, and he'll just wake it up. And you'll jump up and down like this broken man going, Liberty? I've never had this before. I've never walked before. I've never seen before. That is the greatest miracle. And in this man's life, I'm certain this day he wrote down in his journal. You know, February 2nd, walked. But I'll bet in the big, bold letters, he wrote, Jesus is Lord, and he forgives sins. The greatest miracle anyone ever heard is his ability to transform us. Okay, let me get to the application. Um, Hopefully, I have enough time. I don't, but that's okay. Um, Verses 19 through 20, powerful. Listen. So so I'm just picturing this crowd who comes because of the magic show, only to hear that they're guilty as sin in their actions. And then Peter lays out for them the author of light, the holy and righteous one, and this is what he says. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Listen, um, Peter is clear here. He wants to drive his point home. He has confronted the, the crowds based on their sin, and he has shown them the true nature of Jesus, and he addresses a question that's, in my opinion, hanging in the air. I'm only kind of extrapolating here a little bit, but... If I was in that audience, if I saw that miracle, if he said those words and it hit me in the heart, here's what I would do. Can Jesus be my miracle too? Like I'm happy for him, but I'm totally destroyed. Can he be my miracle too? How? And Peter answers it. First word of verse 19, repent. Other than Jesus, the next best word I've ever heard, because it is the way to life. Repentance simply means go the other direction. I mean, you're doing your life your way. You're in charge. You're your own God. Repent means leave that, right? And the only way um, for us to do that, we won't turn unless we admit that we're going the wrong direction. If you're sitting here going, repent. Repent from what? You. You have to admit you are the issue. You have to admit that inside of you, lives a rebel's heart. Inside of you lives a criminal that deserves the punishment, the eternal, great, and awesome, weighty punishment of God Almighty. That's all of us. And I'm not exaggerating. Repent. Can't be found unless you admit you're lost. Here's the other thing important about understanding repentance. Just going in a different direction isn't going to cut it. So if, you, if I'm telling you, return from your direction, and you go, okay, off you go into another desert of lostness, that isn't an option. Repentance simply means turn from the lostness and turn to the truth, the ex- exclusivity of Jesus, the answer, the Savior of the world. That's where you have to turn, to the right direction. Turn to God instead of relying on yourself. Does it make sense? I was uh, helping Neil Pitchell move into a house on uh, Thursday. He got another house. And uh, there's a crowd of guys there. We were all moving stuff around. And somebody asked, what, what direction? I don't know why people ask this. What direction does your house face? I just remember going, sun's here, west. Right? And isn't that how we find our way? Determine where the sun is. Right? You want to go West? Head towards the sun. You want to go north? Make sure it's on the left. And vice versa, you just keep on going, right? Here's the principle. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Once you stop wandering and begin to follow the sun, you've stopped being lost and you're on your way home. If you are chasing other things and other values and other loves and other affections and other gods, well, you're lost and there's no shot for you. If you chase the sun, if you go after the sun, then you have turned towards God. When a person stops trying to be good enough, instead trusts in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf, guess what? You've turned in the right direction. I can't be good enough. Where can I get goodness? Good enough for God. How about this? From God. If... When a person recognizes the emptiness of their life, he begins to look in the Lord's direction. He's turned from his sin, and he's moving towards home. Whenever a person turns away from their own efforts and instead relies on Christ alone, here's what Peter says. This is amazing. Now, if you like promises, if you're one of those people that tell me what God promises, well, here you go. Here's for you, okay? He says in verse 19, amazing. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be what? Blotted out, erased. David called a man after God's own heart. He had a lot of good going for him, but he had a closet, okay? And it's been written for us, murderer, adulterer. Here's what he said. As far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed my transgressions from me. Grace does that. Okay, don't raise your hand because this is the part you don't want to admit. How full is your closet? I know we're not different, so I can just tell you about mine. I had to build like additions to my house for my closet. Where are those things? that you would call rebellion, that God would call rebellion. Where are those foolish choices? Where are the skeletons hiding? Where did you bury them? Here's what the gospel says. All of it, all of it he has covered in his righteousness. Let me, let me read you a powerful passage. You don't have to turn there, but the apostle Paul says this about what God did with your skeletons. And you who were dead in your, trespass, your trespasses and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, all your sin, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. The first time I read that, I pictured it. I don't know if that's fair, but I did. Here's what I pictured. Like what if God actually wrote down my offenses? What if God just said, when you're born, Tim, I'm going to start keeping count. I'm going to write down your offenses. Every time I actually did a proactive evil deed, or every time I tried to do something to get credit for it, a motive of self, right? I did a good thing for the wrong reason. My list runs out of paper. And here's what the text says. God took that ginormous list, and he took it to the cross, and he nailed it there. And the blood of Jesus covered all the accusations, all the charges, all the skeletons, all the problems, all the weaknesses, and all the failures. He covered it all. So if you've got closets, and if you have additions like I do, I'm telling you, in Christ, he remembers it No more. No more. I don't have time to finish, but let me give you a couple other thoughts. He also promises us this. Not only not only will he blot out and erase our transgressions, but he says in verse 19, that times of refreshing may come. This is the opposite, by the way, of what most people think of coming to Jesus or being a Christian. Here's what I've heard about becoming a Christian. Go there and it is no fun. Like I'm living my life, in charge of my life. I'm doing my thing, and it's great out here. At least I think it's great until I wake up the next day. It's all the way I want it. But if I go there, isn't it like living like a monk? Isn't it like dry and boring and hard and difficult and sacrificial? And uh, No. Whatever told you that is a lie. Because the way the gospel presents it is times of refreshing, i.e. blessing. Let me put it this way. Every one of us have pursued what the world has to offer to make us happy. And it's done just the opposite. Jesus is the destination. He's what you want. He's what you're searching for. In him is times of refreshing. One last thought. Verses 20 to 26. I'm going to ask you to read it on your own. But here's what, here's what Peter tells us. The promise of, of Christ is to restore all things, verse 21. To restore all things to where they should be. We are in a condition, I think, spiritually speaking, that looks just like this dude is drug out to the temple every day, every prayer hour. Incapable, stuck in the routine, lost and hopeless. And Jesus comes. And this is what Peter says of him in conclusion in verse 26. God, having raised up this servant, Jesus, sent him to you first, to you, Jewish people, here sitting outside this temple after this miracle, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Jesus is here this morning, and he's offering you the same thing. He will take your wickedness, he will cover it with his righteousness, and you will be free. You will be blessed if you repent. Now, I love how strategic God is. Of all things and all places that we would be, on a day like this, this is what he wants you to hear, about how wonderful Jesus is. And if you come to him with your crippledness, he'll heal you, I promise. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for Christ, for our Savior and our Healer, our Redeemer. Thank you for his work on our behalf, for the Perfected, completed actions on our behalf. God, I pray uh, this morning that those words would sink into our soul, and that God, you would, uh, you do a work. I-, I gotta believe there's some in this room who have maybe heard about the particulars of the good news. And for the first time, I pray, God, you draw them. You draw them. You do the miracle of restoring their crippled heart so they would walk in freedom in Christ. For the rest of us, Lord, if this is a reminder or repeat of the good news that we believe, I pray that it moves our soul deeply, that we'd be more carried away like the healed man about the goodness of Jesus.